and welcome to this week's episode of the EDS at Union Now podcast. In today's episode, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas will be speaking with Sarah Azaransky, Assistant Professor of Social Ethics at Union Theological Seminary and the author of The Dream is Freedom, Pauli Murray and the American Democratic Faith. They discuss the life and theology of the activist, lawyer, and Episcopal priest Pauli Murray. They dive into the pivotal role Murray played in organizing the American Civil Rights Movement, and they discuss her legal career where she was an outspoken champion for protesting discrimination on the basis of race and sex. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and help us spread the word by sharing the show with your friends and family. And with that, please enjoy today's show. I'd like to welcome today to our conversations here at EDS at Union, uh, Dr. Sarah Azaransky who is Assistant Professor of Social Ethics here at Union Theological Seminary. Welcome and thank you for joining me in this conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited for our talk. As am I. In fact, my first introduction to you was way before we ever met. And I think the first time we met was probably three years ago mm-hmm. uh, when I came here to EDS at Union. I was first introduced to you, actually, uh, Sarah, through your book on Pauli Murray, The Dream is Freedom, Pauli Murray and the American, in American Democratic Faith. Uh, and that's when I first learned of Sarah Azaransky, and I very much enjoyed the reading of that book because it seems to me that in the last few years, there has been this a renaissance of sorts, if you will, when it comes to interest in Pauli Murray, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'll return to later. For now, I want to begin by asking you what drew you to this work on Pauli Murray. And not only have you written this book on Pauli Murray, but you were the co-author of the application to make Pauli Murray's home a national landmark. So you're very engaged (laughs) with the life and work of Pauli Murray. What brought you to that? Um, Just really incredible good luck. I I was at a protest in 2002 against the impending war in Iraq, and I was with extended friends, one of whom was in a book group with Taylor Branch. And I, for graduate school, I was still in my coursework for my PhD, I had to write a paper about women in the civil rights movement, and someone recommended I ask Taylor what he thought I should write about. So I asked him. And Taylor Branch, for those who are listening that uh, don't know Taylor Branch, he did uh, the definitive work on uh, Martin Luther King yeah. and uh, two huge volumes yeah. on his life through the civil rights movement. Absolutely. And so we were standing in the train station in Washington, D.C., and Taylor looked up at the ceiling and said, hmm, Polly Murray, I don't think anybody's writing about her. Look into her. So I went home, taking his recommendation seriously, and that's how I discovered her. Oh my goodness, was that your first introduction that to Polly Murray? That was my first introduction to Polly Murray. And so the very first thing I did, this was spring of 2002, is I found where her papers were. It was my first archival experience. I went to her papers um, that are at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, and I began at the end with her sermons, and I fell in love. And it occurred to me that 
She was thinking theologically and politically in such this rich and robust way that it seemed credible that she wasn't more widely known. And so I wrote my paper for that class about her and then realized I would have to write my dissertation about her, and I did. Well, you know, many people, at least in the Episcopal faith tradition, our first introduction to Pauline Murray and really for many of us, our early knowledge and for many only knowledge of Pauline Murray was as the first African-American uh, woman to be ordained uh, to the priesthood. But Pauline Murray was a poet, a lawyer, very uh, instrumental, obviously, in the Brown versus Board of mm -hmm. Education decision. She was an activist she was. Uh, way before yep. uh, Rosa Parks, yep. <laughs> the yep. activist in the 40s, yep. uh, in fact, arrested during the 40s. And of course, she was a priest and a theologian. And so I want to spend our time probably showing my bias, if uh, not yours, uh, in some ways, as a social ethicist, I want to spend some time talking a bit about her as this theologian, because in my mind, and, and you can disagree with this, but in my mind, if we began by understanding Pauli Murray as a theologian, then it is through that lens as a theologian that we can then begin to really understand who she was as a poet, as an activist, as a lawyer, etc. Uh, that because to me, in all of those ways, she was actually living out a theological call. So yeah. let's start at the beginning then to try to dig into that. She once said that the most significant fact of her uh, childhood was that she was an orphan. Mm -hmm. And so how do you think that, if you buy into my understanding of her as a theologian, first and foremost, how do you think being an orphan impacted her theology, particularly as she uh, lived that theology out through her activism? Oh, great question. Um, I think if you want to think about her identity and experience and formation mm -hmm. through that experience of when she was three years old, um, her father was trying to look after the extended family, and for some reason, and she doesn't spend a lot of time reflecting on this, she was picked to go live with her maternal grandparents in Durham and to be raised in part by her two aunts, one of whom was um, was her namesake, mm -hmm. Aunt Pauline, um, and um, and a school teacher. And I think there, I think if I wanted to think about what that experience of being an orphan was like, it was in part not fitting clearly. Yes. <laughs> She was loved and protected by that family, and they raised her up, and they taught her. You see that in her book, Proud Shoes, which is a profoundly fantastic and prophetic social history. Before their social history, she's writing this book in the 50s about the history of her family in North Carolina, both her the enslaved history of her family, but also the complications. She's one of the first people to talk about the role of rape and shaping the experiences of her Black on the maternal side of her family, her grandmother's experience and her great-grandmother's experience. And I think her experience of being not quite, not fitting in a way that she was comfortable probably gave her a lot of insight for her to then come to understand her racial identity, her gender identity, her, her sexuality, and also, frankly, the way in which she lived beyond categories. I mean, some of the times I think that when we 
think about Murray and we want to, in a lot of wonderful ways, you know, fit her into, let's just say, curricula and school and seminaries. There's a way in which in 40 years, I think we're going to be talking about Murray in ways we can't imagine now because there are categories that we don't even anticipate thinking with that she knew. Uh, yeah, so. I want to, because I think, I want to build on that with you a little bit. I think that's exactly uh, right. When I think of Murray in this sense of her sense of herself as an orphan, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that it did allow her to understand what it meant to sort of be in this sort of liminal space, yeah. uh, yeah. not fitting in easily to any category, even in her notion of what it means to be family and yeah. and in and, and a family, uh, and that she crossed all kinds of boundaries. So when we hear this word intersectionality, yeah. We typically associate that with Kimberly Crenshaw, right? right? And perhaps yeah. rightly so. However, <laughs> Murray was talking about intersectionality way before the term intersectionality. And uh, indeed, because she lived in this sense of intersectionality. Could you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so one way to answer that question is to say that in 1947, Murray had an article in which she talked about the category of Jane Crow. Mm -hmm that black women experience sexism and racism differently than white women experience sexism and black men experience racism. Now, of course, this is part of a larger tradition of intellectual and spiritual tradition of black women having an account of what we now would call intersectional mm -hmm. identity. So Murray at the time is, is part of a larger group of people who are talking about that. Um, one of the things that Murray will do will take this category of Jane Crow and, and make particular legal arguments around it which interestingly is connected to Kimberly Crenshaw and her account of intersectionality, the article of which comes out in 1989. And Crenshaw is talking about um, cases that are appealing to Title VII of the 1960 Four um, Civil Rights Act, which Murray helped to make sure sex was included in it. And Crenshaw talked about the extent to which it wasn't working as it might, but not realizing it wasn't working as Murray intended. Yeah. Say something about that. Yes. So Kimberly Crenshaw, in the article on intersectionality, she's talking particularly about the extent to which, and looking most specifically at when Black women bring up complaints to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, there's a form, literally a form you fill out, where you check boxes as to why you think you've been discriminated against. And Crenshaw noted throughout the, throughout the times that people filed claims, Black women often check the box for race and the box for sex. And that judges could did the moral imagination of judges could not see how that black women needed to choose. Mm -hmm. And Crenshaw from that argued that no, in fact, black women's experience is intersectional. Murray recognized that in the argument she made for Title VII. And she could make that argument in part because when we were talking about her experience of liminality, she understood intellectual intersectional experience. That was who she was embodied. So let's talk about this, the theological implications of this for, for Polly Murray. Because in so many ways, Polly Murray lived in a lot of different intersections, mm -hmm. right? Uh, she defied categories of, of gender, uh, mm -hmm. binary gender identity, yeah. male, female. She defied binary sexual expression. Mm -hmm. uh, we call that homo hetero. She also defied 
she recognized the ways in which African Americans in particular defy easy categories of race. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Because of just the complexity. She would talk about an African American community racist before people will say, I remember my mother saying, well, you know, your great grandfather was white, right? Not articulating because yeah. he was the slave master who raped right. your uh, great great grandmother. Uh, uh, so, but she talks about those things and, and so that he defies the, the binaries of race in so many respects. So that Pauline Murray is theologically embodying and talking about, even as she does her activist work and politically, that creation is not binary. Absolutely right. not. Yeah. And so this has such theological implications for how we understand God. And it seems to me that it even points us toward that perhaps the, the framers of uh, the uh, Trinitarian notions didn't quite they didn't understand the radical implications of that, but that the Trinity tries to point us beyond this mm -hmm. binary understanding of God, and binary, which then means binary understanding of creation. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think I think one of the things that Murray does in her sermons, but I will pop back and talk about how she does it in her activism, is is to try to reckon with the radicality of what God promises and hopes for for human beings. That when you talk, when you're talking about kind of what the Trinity points to or herald this notion of, for you know Episcopalian or especially Catholic theologians to think about the perichoretic, the kind of dancing among, mm -hmm. and we can think about Murray's embodiment of different identities sure. as very much dancing between that insofar as identity categories is something we think with today for her they were not static they were almost playful which doesn't mean they did not come without risk and the potential for a kind of disciplining from you know the state or other people around her but really understanding i think what it marlon ross is a scholar who talks about the pleasure of identity i think she's someone who really took pleasure in understanding how she was made and made by a God who reveled in, in plurality. And I think she really, she lived that out. Um, yeah. Except, you know, even as you talk about the her taking pleasure in the way in which she was made, and she certainly recognized in her own life, embodied reality that she did fit categories. And one might, you know, today mm -hmm. someone might try to describe her as transgender. I, I see Murray almost like James Baldwin didn't reject that kind of labeling, but she's very aware that she lived between realities. You suggest that she took pleasure, a certain pleasure in recognizing how she was made, but yes, and yeah. it seems to me she lived in a lot of pain. So she 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 did, and I'll I'll say you know sort of two things about it that come from around the same period. I mean, one of the things that when you ask about her as a theologian, I think that when people talk about Murray, there tends to be this historicizing that happens. That depending on the moment you're looking at her career, she's either an activist, or she's an attorney, or she's a priest, and so now she's religious. Um, when I think one of the things that if you if you encounter her as a theologian, for me, one of the, the most fascinating and important moments comes when 
she is on a bus going from mm -hmm. New York City to Durham. It's Easter weekend and she's arrested and she's arrested for sitting in the front section of the bus. And when she's arrested, this is like in 1940, 1940, yes, right. and when she's arrested, she says to the bus driver, you haven't learned a thing in 2000 years. And then she, as when she's recalling, it says, I, I needed to remind him that it was Easter even. So with that, she's doing pretty amazing biblical analysis, but also making a theological claim that who the bus driver was and who the police officer was who came on the bus, they were just like the Roman authorities who were treating the people like Jesus and Jesus's followers under Roman occupation, that Jim Crow was a kind of Roman occupation. And what's so fantastic about that is this is a fantastical, this is a fantastic theological argument that eight years later Howard Thurman will publish in Jesus and the Disinherited. That's right. That's right. That we have as a kind of pre-source text for for what will become black theology and womanist theology. So you have her thinking and doing that critical thinking. And that day when she's arrested, there's another account of that day that she is traveling with her, her dear friend, by all accounts, her romantic partner at the time coming to introduce her partner to her to her aunts in, in Durham, North Carolina. And when she is, she's dressed like a man. And so it's really interesting what must have gone through her mind to make the decision to dress that way, to travel south, which she had experience of knowing the risks that would put her in. But also in the moment when the bus driver tells her and the police come on, that when she's arrested, there isn't an account of this. How do they know what cell to put her in? How is that determined? Mm, mm. And so your your and so your issue about pain. I mean, first of all, to know the physical risk she was putting herself in in that moment. And in this same decade, there's a few different times where she's at um, at Bellevue and right. here in the city, she's um, put herself in um, on psychiatric hold. Another time where she was found wandering the street um, and put on psychiatric hold. And there are letters that, interestingly, she kept and made sure to include in her archives. Hmm. So she selected them, which I think mm. is interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, where she is writing letters to doctors because she is convinced that she is actually at least in part a man and that she has testicles inside her stomach and won't they please perform exploratory surgery. And one of the reasons that she wanted to call herself Pauline was so that it was sort of gender neutral. It's gender ambivalent. It's gender ambivalent and yeah. that she kept her hair short. Absolutely, uh, and wore pants when women didn't wear pants. That's right, that's right. And so living in this, what we now say liminal space in yeah. terms of gender, and so that's why it makes me think, and I'm gonna to return to this in a minute, that you know she perhaps would not describe herself as trans, gendered because that's still a, a category in which she sort of felt like she, she was just who she was, right? I think she resisted that kind of emplacement exactly. and the it's way in which that. power relations were that's right. communicating about emplacement. I mean, one of the things to go back to her experience as an orphan, one of the most touching things that also are, that she preserved in her files are when she's writing her aunt or during this time period, and her aunt writes her back, or and her aunt is writing her about her little boy-girl personality. Yes. So that sense of like love and acceptance 
by all accounts from people at a time when there wasn't so much sophistication, but there was love and acceptance mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. who she was and her being seen. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really lovely. No, it's, as you talk about uh, this sort of sense of living in this uh, liminal space, uh, she also, that gave her a different sense of what um, maybe freedom uh, yeah. looked like. And so she had this, one of the things about Polly Murray, and I can't remember where I read this in my readings of Polly Murray, but while she liked James Cone, she also stood in opposition to James Cone's theology because of James Cone's, this opposition between black and white, right? And, and what I like about that is because it was James Cone's theology that drew me in and into made me know that I could be black and Christian. And so it was at that time that my blackness was very important to me and not so much who I was as a black woman, but that I was black. And interestingly enough, it would be James Cone who would keep pushing me and say, no, no, you're a black woman. And then here's Polly Murray who recognizes, in fact, in James Cone's writings, one, she doesn't like the sort of black-white oppositionality mm -hmm. uh, that's a part of his writings, and the emphasis on blackness over and against right. uh, women and other kind of things. Yeah. And so it's one of the things that I always find I wish if Pauline Murray were still living, yeah. that we could have this conversation about James Cone. But she also, so it also pushed her more, or perhaps one of the things, and you could speak to this more, that she also didn't like about that was because it, James Cone emphasized a lot liberation, et cetera. Perhaps some have said to the part of reconciliation, and Pauline Murray emphasized, and perhaps because of who she was. Yeah. Freedom for her had to have, there was a strong emphasis on reconciliation. I don't yeah. think to the lack of justice, but mm -hmm. reconciliation, because she had to reconcile all of these sides of herself. Yeah. Uh, and so just to talk about black and not white, just to talk about, not to talk about male, female, and sexuality, or class issues, which she talked about a lot. This was all her. Yeah, yeah, it was. So again, um, yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely did. And it, 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 I mean, so there's so much to, to sort of say. I mean, one of the things that I wish she had been able to read more of Dr. Cohn. Mm -hmm. I think she read the first few books, but what she would have done and the, and the way she would have been thinking about Cross and the Lynching Tree or even Marvin and Malcolm or even the Spirituals and the Blues, I think they would have resonated with her. And mm -hmm. I think she was reacting to his early moment, which was properly what it was. Absolutely. Um, so th that's um, on one hand. On the other hand, I think what you describe, and so now I'm thinking as a teacher and something that we were reading in a class this semester was Patricia Hill Collins, who's a, mm -hmm. a sociologist, mm -hmm. um, was one of Murray's teachers, actually. Oh, one of Murray's students, after one of Murray's students at right. Brandeis. And, she has a lovely article about um, Sojourner Truth and Sojourner Truth's experience of moving between um, social locations and how that gave her insight into freedom mm -hmm. mm. and how the world worked that others didn't have right. as a black woman, as formerly enslaved, as working with white people, as working with other black women. And I think Murray has that sojourning and the wisdom and knowledge that comes from that. So she can know different things. Mm -hmm because her experience of her different identities, for lack of a better word that we have. But I think that absolutely 
affected how she read. For example, so she was reading Dr. Cohn in seminary when she was at General Theological right. Seminary General. downtown in New York. <laughs> But she was also reading Theotis Roberts hmm. and actually was taking a class with him when she was visiting at Howard and was writing Roberts' frustrations with him not taking seriously women's experience, but wanting Cohn to take more seriously reconciliation and wanting Roberts to take more seriously, both black theologians to take more seriously the experiences of black women. And so um, it's Jacqueline Grant who in an article really credits Murray's thesis, her MDiv thesis that she wrote, where she basically taking her analysis of Jane Crow and, and making it theologically, that what black women know theologically is worthy of robust articulation. Yeah, so Murray, and I will return to, to this later as well, but Murray even, you know, she talked about or lived through intersectionality before Kimberly Crenshaw, yeah. and as well as, you know, when we talk about uh, black women theologically and black women be, uh, and feminists and womanist kind of thing, we talk about Theresa Hoover talking about double jeopardy. Well, Murray was already yeah. recognizing and talking about that, even as we can say someone like a Sojourner Truth was. Right. So right. in so many ways, Murray becomes this sort of foundation for the ways in which now black women and others are trying to articulate their experience and what that means, that perspective uniquely theologically. Though uh, so I think that in so many ways, Murray lived out the implications of that theologically, more so even now, and I'll turn to this than womanist. Mm. Before I return to that, I want to get to another thing that Murray said, two other influences uh, on her. We could talk about this all day, so I'm just gonna yeah. give a couple more questions. And Murray said, once as she talked about her own Christian faith mm -hmm. and her own understanding of her Christian faith, that uh, there were two great influences upon her, she said, Eleanor Roosevelt mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King mm -hmm. Jr. Mm -hmm. So we know that she had this long correspondence, uh, corresponding relationship with Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt. We also know that she uh, was very much influenced by Gandhi, as was mm -hmm. King. Yeah. But talk to me about how, and it's interesting as well, she's bringing together this white woman and this black man, right? Eleanor Roosevelt and Martin Luther King Jr. So how do how do how do those two? How do you see those two influences? I well, I will just say that the the premise of her asserting that I both accept and believe her. And I want to call as a little tricky and anachronistic, her talking about yes. King as an influence on her. I mm -hmm. think it absolutely is. But as one little moment, it's her connection with her publisher when she was producing Proud Shoes that helped to get King the contract to write mm -hmm. the book about the Montgomery bus boycott. Is that right? It was Rustin who said, do you have your editor and can they, because he needs to write a book about this. So this is to say that uh, she also had her hands in helping In helping King. King, right, right. Yeah. And she was doing activist work way before King right. was anywhere on the scene. Absolutely. So so one of the things I think I'll say in terms of answering your question specifically, and then I want to make sure I say something about how she's thinking about freedom, because I think it's related to all of her kind of many manifestations of work. I think in Roosevelt, on the one hand, she saw a kindred spirit. I think she saw a woman who in some ways, we want to be careful how we use this term, was 
queer in a lot of the ways yeah. Murray was queer. Yeah. She was smart and unapologetic, and she was a woman of faith, and she was a woman of conviction, and she was a woman who was inventing categories and pushing the possibilities of freedom for more people. I think she also saw in Eleanor Roosevelt, she was really frustrated in her inability to, with all of that skill and compassion, not be even more radical. So I think their friendship was one right. born of true respect for each other. And they saw each other. And they saw each other. And I think there was so much they recognized in each other. Yeah. And I, they they did. They corresponded. And they also, she would invite Murray to her mm-hmm. um, to her townhouse here in the city. And they would have lunch together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a real friendship and one of deep respect. So I think one of the things she saw in Eleanor Roosevelt, talk about someone living without a script was really the courage it took and the risk it took, even with all of her privilege, but to be who she was mm-hmm. um, and to be respected for her ideas. I think, yeah. Oh, good. So I said that, that was my second to last question, but I have two more questions because you said some, and, and it goes back to what I said I returned mm-hmm. to in terms of women's theology. And you use this term in relationship to the relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt. So I love good. Good to okay. Queering. Okay. And uh, I do think that they, Eleanor Roosevelt saw her, she saw Eleanor Roosevelt, and they saw each one another and the other, saw themselves and the other. People have often said that and described Murray as sort of proto womanist. Yeah. You know, but I push back on that. Yeah, I do too. Oh, well, <laughs> because yeah. I want to do that carefully. Though. Yeah, I, and I do too. But I'm a womanist, so I have, you know, I have to push back hard and even uh, because I think that womanist theologians, for one, uh, have not freed themselves, ourselves theologically from certain binaries. Uh, and womanist, and in so doing, I think have not understood fully God, the fullness of, of God, uh, and not understood when you talk about freedom with Murray, not understood fully what wholeness looks like. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think Murray, because she lived in the brokenness of our not understanding wholeness slash freedom, that she had this more radical, as in fuller, understanding of what wholeness would look like or what a just earth uh, would look like that could embrace all of God's creation. So that Murray, I think, not proto-womanist, I would rather think of Murray as sort of uh, proto-queer. Queer. Mm. She was a queer theologian. And, and when we understand queer theology is queering all of the boundaries, yeah. it's, it's transgressive, right? Yeah. And so that you queer uh, all of the ways, all of these constructions uh, that really limit how we can think of ourselves, creation, and think of freedom. And so I said, she's not proto-womanist. She's, she's an early, a pioneering queer theologian. Hmm. I like that. You know, for me, one of the distinctions, and I and I want to not dwell too much on this, so treat it very mm-hmm. gently. 
But as I read womanists and black feminists, make a distinction between womanism and black feminism, mm -hmm. again, not spending mm -hmm. more than a minute mm -hmm. on it, is the extent to which um, purposefully taking as a primary community of accountability, black women, especially mm -hmm. black American Christian women, um, and black feminists taking the risk of trying to be in political relationship with feminists around the world and even with white feminists in the United States who historically have not been for black freedom. Mm -hmm. And that one of the things that I think makes Murray a black feminist is she had spent a lot of time working with white women and somehow had figured out how to have those working relationships work for her. And so I think that's an important thing to recognize in her commitments. And when you think about her defining her as a queer theologian, I really like that. And I think one of the things that Murray does that's so interesting that as we talk about, you know, in my queering ethics class that I had this morning at Union, and we talk about, especially from ethics, but also from a theological perspective, although more, I guess, from the perspective of social ethics, the conundrum or the paradox mm -hmm. of what it means to have ethics, to, to undertake an ethical project that is about defining and describing principles and norms. And have that be clear that is about unpacking those norms. Unpacking those norms so right. how do you have how, how how does that happen? And I think when we think about Murray and her commitment to freedom, I think we see what that might look like. And one of the things I think if we think about her as a theologian always, mm -hmm. or that her theological mindset, which I believe absolutely um, inflected every way in which she was in the world. I think there's a way in which we also need to learn from her that freedom requires many different strategies. Yeah. It requires being a lawyer, and it requires being a priest, and it requires being a poet, and it requires sitting in in 1941 when no one else was sitting in. It requires living at the Harlem Ashram and 124th and 5th Avenue mm -hmm. and practicing interracial, multi-religious community and trying to figure out what Gandhi is saying, how it works in that context and how it works in this. It requires daily practice. I think what's fascinating is that most of us understand that if we're lucky, our work is one of those things. <laughs> and we haven't heard this person who embodies intersections of movements right. and is able to recognize that all of those things are going to get us closer to freedom. Yeah. No, I like that. Which once lets me in this way with Murray, because we hear today so often, particularly part of the Episcopal conversation and conversation in this current political culture in which we find ourselves, uh, and people ask, well, where is the faith community? Where are their voices? And we hear uh, preachers all the time or church leaders, religious leaders saying, well, you know, there's uh, we have to be careful with the relationship between uh, religion and politics. So we have to walk, well, I can't really preach that because we have to be bipartisan, etc. But Murray, if you read her sermons, she understood in so many respects that this theologian comes together. All of who she is comes together for her, it seems to me, in the sermonic moment. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so she absolutely, it seems to me, again, defied any notions of sacred, secular, political, uh, religious. What would she say to us today in this moment with this kind of uh, timidity, uh, if you will, by 
taking that risk and being that moral voice? I mean, on the one hand, I think she would say that if you you need to do your best to witness where God is in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's almost eerie about reading her sermons is she had sermons in the late 70s where she was talking about people crossing the Arizona desert and dying who were struggling to get to freedom and what that means mm -hmm. and how we can be a place that offers uh, refuge for people and that we're not. I have goosebumps. It's yeah, true. We're not. That's right. That's exactly right. And so I think there's so many ways in which she anticipates Reverend Barber's campaign and what he's saying about it. it's not about being political or not political. It's not about left or right. It's about saying what's true. And for Christians, we have an account of what's true from the Gospels, from the bus driver is acting like a Roman centurion. Right. We have an account of what God wants for us, that we have in doctrines like the Trinity, but we also have an account of what it means when the poor and the meek and the peacemakers are blessed. What would that look like? Right. Yeah. Um, and I think for her, it's not about politics even. It's just about what flourishing would look like. Right. What freedom looks like. What freedom looks like. What freedom looks like. And it seemed to me that she understood the meaning of freedom from the vantage point of the orphan and the many ways in which people are, in fact, orphaned uh, in our world. Dr. Sarah Azaransky, <laughs> this conversation can go on forever. And I hope that it does. I hope that we join forces very soon. I would love it. Thank you very much. Teaching a course on Polly Murray. Thank you for your work on Polly Murray. Thank you for this conversation. And I invite all friends who are listening. This is only the beginning of Polly Murray. And I invite you to read, learn more about Polly Murray.